You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Isn't it funny how little things make such a big difference? Here's what I mean. Um, It was about 10 years ago, and I had to make an investment. I think it was around like my 30th birthday. And it's an investment that I know many of you have also had to make. Uh, But it's an investment that you don't want to talk about. You prefer to never even have to think about it. But thanks to genetics, it is probably a part of your life. I am talking about a nose hair trimmer. So here's the story. I get this thing, I'm standing in front of the mirror in our bathroom, I open the box, I hold it in my hand, trying to assess the state of life that I have achieved to warrant such a device. I'm like, okay, fine, let's just do this. So, get going, and then, no, and like it literally stopped. Like it actually clogged, I broke it. Like the first time, and I'm like, this is terrible. And so like, I let go of it, and it's like swinging there, like a tire swing, and like it's so gross. And I'm like, well, now what do I do? Because now I have this like very tense moment where I'm gonna have to choose between two equally painful options. Option number one, I'm gonna have to call Mandy in from the other room and have her work with care to extract this device from my nose, which is really weird, or, well, that's not happening because I'm a prideful person. Um, option number two, just bite the bullet and do what must be done. Like I told you, I'm a prideful person. I'm also very stubborn. And so I kind of bit my bottom lip, grabbed the thing, and and I cried for five minutes like a baby. True story. Isn't it funny how little things make such a big difference? So this is um, our eighth week in an 11-week teaching series in the book of James. Uh, James is leading the Jerusalem church through rising persecution, threadbare faith, like this fickle, flickering hope. And you guys have hung on so well through the book of James. James is a tough book to teach in good times when everything's just, you know, moving along. It's an even tougher book to teach in times that we're in right now. James has lots of these little things like peppered all throughout his book that make a very big difference. And most of them are quite painful. Um, Now, a couple little aside things before we get going. Um, For those of you that are curious or if you're new to North Canton Chapel, once a year uh, we try and carve out a large block of time where we go through one book. Um, usually like verse by verse, and we, we pull ex- application and meaning um, right from, from this book. It's called expository preaching. There's expository preaching, there's textual preaching, and there's topical preaching. And all three of those styles of preaching have value, and so we do all three. Um, but expository preaching, um, especially when you're trying to go through a whole book, um, it's really valuable because, one, it roots us in the book itself. It gets us familiar with the text, and then it's also just profoundly helpful for you. Um, I believe one of the biggest benefits of preaching is it equips you to enjoy your time in the Word on your own. And so when we do all this stuff about, you know, cultural history and grammar and these like little things that we're going to get into today, um, this just equips you to enjoy a deep, rich time with God and His Word. So for today, little things that make a big difference. Uh, James's letter has earned the nickname, the bossiest book in the Bible. 
It's the bossiest book in the Bible because he uses 54 imperative verbs, these command verbs, in 108 verses. And at this point, at the end of chapter 3, he's most of the way through of a five-chapter book, but he's only used 22 of those verbs. He's holding back. But as we turn the corner into chapter 4, I want to give you a heads up. James is about to get really, really bossy. And where we are this week... In chapter 4, first 10 verses, he's going to unload 10 imperative verbs, and they're going to be really, really painful, and it's going to feel like a short, sharp little tug. It's going to cause us to wince a little bit. So before we get into it, I want to prepare you. James is setting us up. He's going to ask a couple of questions. He's going to force us to see an issue that we probably don't want to see, and then he's going to drive us to a painful yet profound insight, and here it is. Humility before God leads to unity with man. Humility before God leads to unity with man. So with that, chapter four, let's get right to it. James starts off with a question. And this is a really familiar tactic for James. We've seen him do it five times already. The most recent was last week um, in chapter three. But here he is. He's starting off with a question. Now, why does James do this? James does this because he wants to jar our thinking. It's like downshifting an engine in a car too early. He wants our eyes to stop moving past the words and really, really see them for what they are. And so what's his question? Take a look in verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? How appropriate is that given our current day? And I love that question, and I love it because it's so typical James. Like, what? There's an elephant in the room? Let me poke at it and name it for you, and then we're going to look at it. This is what James does. Um, And I love it too because it's an issue that most Christians do not want to talk about. Like quarrels and fights, those are no fun. Let's just not talk about those. If we could sweep them under the rug and get on with the good stuff, that's what I want to talk about. But James, masterfully, with his hand on the gear shift and his foot on the clutch, sends the engine reeling as he downshifts and goes, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You need to ask this question. This question is good for you. And maybe this is my interpretive leaning in this, but um, I think James is kind of hoping that we come up with the wrong answer first. Did you catch, like, there's like this parental overtone to what he's doing? What causes fights and quarrels among you? He's like the dad that just busted into his kid's living room, and there's red Sharpie all over the wall. It's the same red Sharpie that his two-year-old is holding in his hand, and the dad says, what happened here? Like, it's obvious what happened. He knows what's going on. The answer is very clear, but... There's a certain amount of power in leveraging a certain amount of tension, isn't there? So in the same way, James gives his readers and us just a few seconds to feel the tension before he opens it up. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Because here's the thing. I've got an answer for that question. Don't you? I'll tell you what causes fights and quarrels. It's because people don't agree with me. If they saw the things the way that I saw them, there wouldn't be fights and quarrels. That's the problem. Or how about this one? She's just a bad communicator. That's what's going on. It's her problem. Or the most tragic of all is, well, that's just the way things are. It's always been this way and it's always going to be that way. You don't have to be a wizard of conflict management to know that the last person that we blame is ourselves. And it's probably where we should start. Sorry, maybe I'm projecting. Is that just me? I don't think so. I think that's a very common thing. And so as if sensing our inability to come up with an honest answer, James supplies us with one. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? 
Now that's a rhetorical question. It's a statement phrased as a question, and we're not supposed to answer the question because the answer is supposed to be obvious. Here's what James is getting at. Internal conflict leads to external conflict. Or if you want to tie it right to the text, wars within you lead to wars among you. And like a lawyer who's building his case, James leads us through three sequential scenarios to prove his point. Take a look again in verse 2. He says, you desire and do not have... And so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, you do not, or because you do not ask, you ask and you do not receive. He's like, there's this action and this result. And tumbling through these three consecutive conflictual scenarios, James bottoms out at his ultimate reason for all this internal conflict at the end of verse three. He says, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. There's that word again. It's the second time it's come up. Passions. Interesting word, isn't it? In our culture, in our world, we use the word passion very complimentary. We use it very positively. We say things like this. It's like, man, he's just such a passionate person, or she's really passionate about that cause, or like, man, he really lives with passion. But in James's context, that word is always used negatively. The Greek word is where we get our word for hedonism, this unbridled, unchecked pursuit of pleasure at all costs. And it's always self-centered, especially in the New Testament. Causes, agendas, things that make me look good. Hmm. Now, right now we're talking about conflict. A couple of verses in. And it would be really easy to spin this sermon right now into something like seven ways to fight fair or ten tips to handle conflict well. But we can't do that because James wants us to see something else. And here's James's point. God refuses to fund my self-centered passions. Did you catch that? You ask wrongly. Your desire is frustrated. God's not giving you what you want because you're going to spend it over here and God is too wise for that. But here's what happens. Because God doesn't give me what I want, I get frustrated and I turn that fire hose of frustration on other people. Fights, quarrels, bitterness, gossip, whatever. And here's James's key insight for us. My problem is not horizontal. My problem is vertical. I don't have a people problem. I have a God problem and I'm just too proud to admit it. And you're the exact same way. Sorry. And so by painfully inviting us to see conflict from God's perspective, James wants us to see that the problem isn't anywhere out there. It's all in here. We said this a few weeks ago. Divisiveness always says more about the heart of the person and less about the issue of the day. So should Christians just be doormats then? Is that what he's saying? Should we never fight about anything and just be, you know, namby-pamby, complacent, passive people? Well, God made us with a capacity for passion, for belief, for strength. What should we do with those things? Here's the key. When our passions get out of line with our design, we do incredible harm to the people of God, and we do incredible damage to the kingdom of God. It's not the lack of passion that grieves the Holy Spirit. It's misaligned passion. It's when we're passionate about the wrong things. It's when we waste our passion. So by way of quick application, let me give you something that might help you out. 
Um, I want to encourage you to think about passion and issues in terms of three categories. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago and, um, on our online gathering on Wednesday night. So some of you have heard this before, uh, but some of you this will be new and I hope it's fr freeing for you. Um, think about these things in three categories. Okay, so imagine a pyramid, if you can, that's broken up into three chunks. And at the bottom, you have preferences. Preferences. This is just stuff that I prefer, right? Now I got tons of them. It's like I prefer, you know, chicken to steak, or I prefer this to this. Or in church world, it's like, well, I like that carpet color, or I like that color of paint, or I prefer, you know, this and that. These are lots of preferences, and there's tons of them down here at the bottom. Moving to the second level is there's doctrine. So preferences and doctrine. Doctrine is stuff like what I believe about predestination versus free will. What I believe about things like communion and baptism. What I believe about the way that the Bible is translated. This is stuff that I'm like, I'm not just like interested in, but like, man, I got, I got a little bit more of a, a say. I'm going to lean a little bit harder. Something has convicted me on this. Roles of women and men in the church. All this kind of stuff that starts to turn up the heat a little bit more. It's in this doctrine category. And then at the top of this pyramid is this third category that I call dogma. And dogma is the stuff like, man, I'll take a bullet for. It's like the virgin birth, the inerrancy of scripture, the dignity of humanity created in the image of God, the trinity, right? The, the divinity of Jesus. He is who he says. These are things like, yeah, I, we're not going to argue about these things. These, this is the irreducible core of orthodox teaching. So here's what I want you to see as it relates to conflict and passion, especially in these divisive days in the church and in our culture. A couple of quick insights, and then we're going to continue with the text. First, you should always have more preferences than dogmas. You should always have more preferences than dogma. Guys, I got a ton of stuff that I prefer. I got a preference when it comes to worship style. I've got a preference when it comes to lighting in the sanctuary. I've got a preference when it comes to Bible translation. I've got a preference when it comes to what kind of coffee we serve in the cafe. Isn't it interesting, though, how in these recent months, how peripheral so many of those things have become? Do you think God's trying to teach us something about their value? Because they're a dime a dozen. I've got hundreds of preferences, and so do you. The problem is they're just not worth very much, which leads me to the next point. We get in trouble when we treat dogma like preferences and preferences like dogma. And churches do this stuff all the time, and it's why the world shakes its head unbelievingly at the church. Now, there are some issues in the Christian life that I'll take a bullet for, and I, I mentioned a couple of them, but they are few and they are deep, right? Image of God and people. People deserve dignity, yes, Jesus' complete atonement on the cross, yes. The authority of Scripture is God's inspired word. I'd take a bullet for those. Carpet color in the hallway? Meh. I just don't care. You ever seen a church split over something preferential? I haven't. It's heartbreaking. So you can have your preference. You can even have some of those lower doctrinal things. There's room. But man, you start teaching that the Bible isn't God's word or Jesus isn't who he says he is. We go to war over those. But churches and Christians always get in trouble when we treat preferences like dogma and dogma like preferences because these things at the top, they are a big deal, so we hold them tightly. But these things at the bottom, we hold them a little bit more loosely and we hold them generously. And so you can kind of feel James's point start to emerge here, can't you? Humility before God leads to unity with man. But he's not there yet um, because he's, a bite, he's about to light the fuse on a powder keg. And uh, here we go. Let's pick it up again in verse 4. You adulterous people. How about that for pastoral sensitivity? You thought I was 
harsh a couple of weeks ago. Here he is again. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity toward God or with God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that to no purpose, the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And these are just a couple of verses, and they're so filled with rich, profound imagery and deep theology. I wish we had a day and a half to unfold this, but I just want to summarize it really quickly. I want to invite you to consider that these verses are the entire Old Testament in miniature. Okay, so James pulls Old Testament language, language that his Jewish audience, who were steeped in the language and verbiage and traditions of the Old Testament, would have been very, very familiar with, and he points all of that language right at our selfish desires. He starts off with this incredibly strong language that says, you adulterous people. And our eyes kind of wince, and our lips sort of quiver a little bit, and we go, whoa, And we should feel that response because it feels overstated. But here's what James is doing. He's reaching back over their collective history. He's reminding reminding them all of their past. And he's bringing this word forward. You adulterous people. Because Moses, the prophets, the kings, even the poetry books of the Old Testament use this word adulterous to describe every time God's people choose something that they want for them over something God wants for them. It's this terribly visceral, tragic imagery. God says, I bought you. I love you. I sought you. You're mine. I'll protect you. I'll lead you and I'll serve you. Just be faithful to me. And time and time again, what do God's people do? Nope. God, this is what we want. Insert idol here. King, power, position, influence, authority, money, cultural swagger, whatever. Yeah, God, you've been good, but this is what we need to get us where we need to go. Timely message, isn't it? And this is what James wants us to see. He's saying when we put our desires for us ahead of God's desires from us, we are hopping in bed with the world. Strong language for our Western ears, but it's language that James's audience would have instantly connected with. And don't think for a minute that we're immune to it. And then James asks two questions after this launching accusation. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? This is first question. Verse 5, he has another question. Do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us? Here's what I want to do. I want to condense those. He might as well be asking, church, do you feel how alluring the world can be? Do you feel how seductive the world can be and how tragic the consequences of going that direction are? And then two, this other question, God, do you you feel how deeply God pursues you as as your heavenly father? Do you know how much he loves you? And so there's these two pulls that he, he just puts out there. He's got the world on this side and he's got God's love for his people on this side. And at the risk of oversimplifying, these are the exact two pulls that characterize every aspect, every day of our lives, right? The pull of the world to see people in categories that cause division, to chase momentary pleasures that can't deliver, to cave into worldly hopelessness that brings desperation. Guys, there's members of the church that need to repent for worldly thinking because they love the world. There's that pull. And then there's this other one over here that says, God loves you, and so rest in that, my child. 
or to use James's word, he yearns over you jealously. Here's something I want to encourage you to think about. At the very moment that you choose a worldly choice, you put your feet on that path, at that moment, God still loves you. At the same time that you give in to temptation for like the thousandth time, God still loves you. When you set your feet to the path of divisiveness and anger and bitterness and you give in to division, God still loves you. Why? Because God loves you as you are, not as you should be. And that's why James can crash land into verse 6, which is like a hinge of this whole text this morning, when he says, but he gives more grace. And this is exactly what James's audience has been begging to hear. Even though we are an adulterous people, and even though we flirt with low-minded passions, and we're so completely outside of God's desire for us so consistently, God has more grace. What's fascinating is James doesn't say how, does he? Because it kind of begs the question. Like, if I'm so flirtatious and fickle and faithless and flippant and we're so adulterous, like, how can a holy God of the universe possibly have more grace for me? There's one answer. You know it, hopefully. His name is Jesus. My mind goes back to that song. It's his old song. Um, We sing it here sometimes. It says, Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Because it's all about grace, right? Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Like when you get a glimpse of God's mercy, his undeserved favor, the fact that he's holding back his judgment, it just makes you free to worship. And there's this great second verse that starts off by saying, Here I raise my Ebenezer, which is not a Charles Dickens character from A Christmas Carol. Ebenezer is a pile of rocks from the Old Testament that God's people built to say, This far God has brought us, and it's his ability, not mine. I humiliate myself so I can exalt him. And it says, Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. And then this great gospel-laden imagery where he says, He, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Interposed, it means like he got in the way. So here's me and here's God's wrath. Jesus got in the way and he took it. He put himself between it. And then my absolutely my favorite verse is the last verse because it's so meaningful in terms of our day-to-day. It says, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Was there ever a truer expression of the day-to-day battles of the Christian life than that? Daily a debtor to grace. Every day I live, every breath I breathe, every victory I enjoy, I work myself deeper in debt to grace so that the time when my eyes close and I'm headed to glory, I'm so deep in debt, I could never pay God back for all the goodness he's shown me. And then it closes with this true-to-life prayer. It says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. How about that for an honest self-assessment? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Do you hear those two prayers in there? Like prone to wander. Gosh, this world is so alluring. Here's my heart, take and seal it. God, you love me and I know you're jealous for me. And you can start to see, can't you? James is silently, slowly promoting this idea of humility among God's people. Because remember where he wants to take us. Humility before God leads to unity with man. Now, we've been waiting for verse 7. And you heard me talk about all those painful little things that make a big difference. He's not used one imperative verb yet. And I told you there were ten in this text. And they're all coming in the next three verses. 
James has been baiting us along. He's been showing us that wars within lead to wars among, and humility is the answer, but he hasn't shown us how to get there yet. Now, if you've been following this idea that the book of James is like walking in this trail in the woods on this very difficult path, in my imagination, at the end of verse 6, we're standing at the bottom of this cliff face. And we're looking up and there's like a waterfall coming over and it's like this vertical cliff face and there's like toe holds and finger grips and like, where am I supposed to get into this thing? And James goes, well, look up because that's where we're going. Here's verse seven. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now what are we supposed to do with this barrage of negative imperatives James gives us here? I want to encourage you to look at these verses as the unfolding of one idea. Humility before God. That's what he's trying to talk about. Now, here's the interpretive clue. And here's how to make sense of this like barrage of verbs. How does James start? Look at the end of verse six again. He says this, he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourself before God. And the end of verse 10, Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So bookended here is this idea of being humble before an almighty God. And so sandwiched into the middle of this incredibly pointed and really negative imperative verbs comes like a barrage from a theological shotgun. Is like cleanse, purify, be wretched, mourn, weep, wail, turn your laughter into mourning, joy into gloom, and then again with humility. So what do we do with all that? I mean, seriously, like, how's that for a church mission statement? Right? Like, could you imagine somebody asking James in the first century, like, what's, what's the vision of your church, James, there in Jerusalem? And he says, well, we want to be the church who makes much of mourning and weeping every day to everyone. Right? It's not really sticky. Like, what, is it, what are we supposed to do with this? In order to understand what James is doing here, I want to invite you into nerd land with me for just a few moments. Um, James is using a literary device called inclusio. Okay, inclusio. And I know that sounds like a Bond villain or a 90s band, but here's what inclusio means. Anytime you hear the word inclusio, I want you to think sandwich. All right, so here's how it works. If I were to tell you, like, hey, the sunrise today was beautiful. Tomorrow morning, let's get up and get our coffee early. Let's go sit outside. Let's leave our phones inside. Let's have a conversation. Let's sit out on the porch. Let's just watch. Man, the sunrise tomorrow is going to be awesome. That's an inclusio. I'm giving you the big idea, which is let's watch the sunrise together. This is going to be great. And then sandwiched in the middle of that hopeful notion is all the details that characterize what that's going to look like. So with that in mind, let's read this again. End of verse 6, he says, God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, resist the devil, draw near, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, be wretched, mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. So you see how that works? He's got a sandwich happening here. Now, that's part of the issue. But the really other question is, why would James do this? Why is he waiting and then unloading this whole thing here, the last three verses? And that's the interpretive key for unlocking this text. So follow me just for a second. Like every good guide, James wants to make sure that his people get where he wants them to go. But 
He also knows that they need to never miss the big idea. They never need to lose, they can never lose sight of the objective. So he wants to get them all the little things along the way, all the little finger grips and the toe holds and all these little places where they gotta put their feet in position. He wants to give them all these little things, but he never wants them to lose sight that this is the main goal. Don't get so caught up in the details of planning, perfecting, and managing your spiritual life that you forget that the ultimate goal is not performance for God, but presence with God. The goal of your walking with Jesus is not an accomplishment thing. It's a relational thing. And James wants to make sure that we see that. Humble yourself before the Lord. And this is what that looks like, all this other stuff. But now watch where James goes next. This is something that we cannot miss. Take a look again in verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. That word exalt can be better translated as lift up or carry. So you remember that cliff face that we were standing in front of just a couple of verses ago? It looks so intimidating. We hear all those words and we go, <sighs> the good news is, is you don't have to do that in your own strength. Your heavenly father who loves you and is jealous for you wants to carry you all the way up in his strength because his arms are way stronger than yours. And that's really good news for those of us who feel like failures. Because I get like, out of those 10 commands, I get like three in and I want to quit, right? Where it says, submit yourself to God. And I'm like, well, <laughs> that's easier said than done because I'm really prideful and I don't like to bend my neck. <laughs> Resist the devil, and I'm like, oh, well, that's easy to do. Why is it the harder I try and resist, the harder he tries to come at me? Draw near to God. I'm like, I'm so tired. I'm kind of a little bit lazy. Why can't God come over and draw near to me? <laughs> I'm out. And so unless you live in the reality that none of that can be done in your strength, you're probably going to find yourself constantly struggling with shame and guilt every time you miss a foothold, which will happen and then it's tumble back to the bottom again, start over again, try harder this time, knuckle down. And that's exactly what the gospel is designed to prevent, prideful dependence on my own awesomeness. <laughs> How long is that going to get you? Tell me, according to the text, who is responsible for humbling you? You are. Humble yourself. Tell me, according to the text, who is responsible for exalting you? God, not me. Do you see the gospel just simmering under the lid there? James asks us to see our contentious proclivity to quarrel and fight. And then he calls us an adulterous people, rightly so, because we give our hearts away every day. And then laying out all of these commands, we're left completely unable, overwhelmed at the impossibility to scale this cliff face. And that's right where James wants us to be, face to face with our, under, like our unbelievable, overwhelming need for God. Now, let's get back to the issue. Fights and quarrels. How does humility before God connect to unity with man? I want to make sure you get this. Here's the point. We are all in the same boat. The gospel is the great leveler. 
We are all messed up. We are all needy. We are all destitute. We've all blown it. We're all unable. But by Christ, we are all equally loved. We are equally valued. We are equally pursued. And that's the gospel. It humbles us and it strengthens us and it undercuts us and it carries us because it's outside of us. So how could we be so spiritually nearsighted to have all these little itty-bitty fights about such passing worldly things when there's the gospel there as the only lens through which to see our world, our neighbors, our friends, our family, and ourselves. Humility before God leads to unity with man. So, practically, in our last couple of minutes together, how do we expect to learn humility? As we turn into application for a minute, I want to read a few words from one of my favorite authors, um, a guy named Brendan Manning. And... Um, In his book, The Signature of Jesus, here's what he says. He says, We don't learn humility by reading about it in spiritual books or by listening to sermons. Amen. We learn humility directly from the Lord Jesus in whatever way he wishes to teach us. Most often, we learn humility through humiliations. What is humility? It's the stark realization and acceptance of the fact that I am totally dependent upon God's love and mercy. It grows through a stripping away of all self-sufficiency. Humility is not caught by repeating pious phrases. It is accomplished by the hand of God. And so before we close, I want to invite you to consider something this week. Um, I want to ask you to spend some time meditating on four truths. And this is not the typical kind of application, and I get that. I'm slipping into spiritual director mode, and I get that. Um, but if James is right, this whole humble yourself, humble yourself before God thing, this is between the two of you. I'm just here to equip you and to point the way. So four truths I want to encourage you in this week. Truth number one, remember who you are. Remember who you are. Meditate on your frailty. Become really well acquainted with the dustness of your own being, that you are loved and pursued and treasured and valued, but you are also mortal You are a creation, not creator. Remember who you are. Second thing, remember what you can't do. Let your mind turn to how many battles you've lost, how many fights you had to back down from, how many hills that you had to descend when you'd rather ascend, relationships that you've handled poorly, conversations that you've botched, unsaid tensions that are just hanging out there in space, things you wish you could fix but you can't, paths to healing that you wish you could walk but you just can't find the way. Remember what you can't do. And then turn the corner. Remember who God is. Remember that he is timeless, that he formed mountains with his fingers and scooped oceans with his hands. Remember that he is holy. He is above us. He is free. He is beholden to none. He hangs stars and he knows their names. He's placed them exactly where they should go. He is almighty. Remember who God is. And then lastly, fourth thing, remember what God can do. God made man out of clay. He made Moses a prince, a shepherd, and then a leader. He made Esther a queen and then a symbol of hope after being a court attendant. He made Paul a lawyer, a blind man, and then a church planter. Think what he could do to you. Our God makes dead things live. Think of what he could do to you, for you. Think of what he could do with church. Really grabbed onto that idea of being humble before God. What could that do for a city, for a county, for a state, for a country, for a world?
What causes fights and quarrels among you? Worldly passions. It's kind of clear. That's the answer. I'm chasing things that are too small. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humility before God leads to unity with men. Let's pray. God, even in these moments, I'm aware that you took on the most humbling thing possible. That though you are a creator, star-flinging, planet-making God, that you stepped into this world and you were crucified by selfish people. You gave your body to be broken and your blood to be poured out for people like us who don't deserve it. We're so prideful. We're so selfish. God, forgive us for those things. We want to see unity, Father. We want to see it in our friendships. We want to see it in our neighborhoods. Father, help us to see we need to be humble before you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.